It's FAQ NYC Off Cycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city, steps back to take different and deeper looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. Ben Smith, editor of Semaphore, is out with the new book called Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. The book is about the rise and fall of Gawker and BuzzFeed, newsrooms that helped redefine journalism as we know it. Ben was the founding editor of BuzzFeed News, which recently closed. Before that, I, like many of you, got to know him as a reporter at the New York Sun, New York Observer, and Politico. For a while, Ben was also my editor and a neighbor in Brooklyn. He wanted an intern to help him cover the 2005 mayor's race. I was working at a local paper in Queens, the Queens Tribune, and I saw this as a way to go citywide. So Ben hired me. I chase candidates at night, sit through hours of candidate forums and club endorsement votes. Reporters from big dailies were usually there too, but since there wasn't room in the paper for all these little nuggets of news, I'd shovel them over to Ben and he'd publish them the following morning on his blog. It was called The Politicker. That made The Politicker feel fresher and newer than that piece of dead wood on the newsstand. But that acceleration of the news cycle and perhaps my focus on news of the day may have blinded me to some of the bigger storylines that painfully seem obvious today. So let's hash it all out with Ben Smith. Ben Smith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me on, Ozzy. All right. So uh, finally, you've written a book. Uh, I think I've been waiting for this for a long time. (laughs) Um, What took you so long? You know, I never really like set out to write a book or wanted to write a book. I'm a very pure internet person, basically, I think, and always told my colleagues at BuzzFeed they shouldn't write books because they were just like long PDFs that were distributed in a particularly clunky way. But I, I guess when I when I got when I left BuzzFeed in 2019, got to the Times in 2020, did have a sense of like, huh, like some whole well, like what the hell did I just live through? And it feels like a whole era is sort of coming to an end. And this was an excuse in some ways to explore that. Yeah. So uh that sounds like a very reasonable kind of uh cautious approach to to a to a venture like this. One of the things that I picked up from from reading the book, which which took me a little while, because I, I literally had to put it down several times because I was getting flashbacks of of some <laughs> well, of those years. Lived, we lived through it, yeah. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that, that that really struck me was how rooted this story is in New York and how much geography actually plays a role in it. And I'm wondering if if you've given that a lot of thought and reflection now that you've done the book tour, aka podcast tour, uh talking about this. Um you know, it's, I mean, it, it is so much, I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of historical events, a lot of, you know, moments really do come down to kind of small scenes of people who all know each other and live near each other and date each other and hang out together in bars. And and that's definitely true of that kind of early internet world. Um, sorry about the dog background noise, which um is a, uh, you know, it was very rooted in New York. It's actually hard to remember, but there was this moment after the tech crash in 99 to 01 
in Silicon Valley, when it was sort of conventional wisdom, or at least kind of lame newspaper conventional wisdom, that Silicon Valley in California was dead, and that a lot of the new investment in energy would be in Silicon Alley in New York, in downtown Manhattan. And in fact, there was a specific idea that, well, the tech industry has sort of taken pure tech as far as it's going to go. But the new energy will be around the sort of intersection of tech and media for which New York is the place. And, you know, that, and that, so that was certainly Gawker and Huffington Post. It was also companies like Foursquare, if you remember them, Etsy, which yep. still exists. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, I think then you see Facebook launch in 2004 and that, and, and the, and many other companies in the center of gravity clearly migrates back to, um, back to California. But, but I think a lot of what should reshape media was really born in this moment of energy and investment in New York. Yeah. So, we're both for, from New York. This is where we met. Um, yeah. But there's something about your ge- your geography that that I think is of New York, but also from outside of New York, which I think plays a role in, in the kind of journalism you've done throughout your career. But first, can you tell us just a little bit about where you grew up and where you are currently? Because I think that helps shape a perspective outside of the power center of Manhattan. Huh. I don't know. I mean, I grew up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. Um and now live in Ditmas Park in Brooklyn. They were surrounded by extreme outsiders, all of whom work at the New York Times. <laughs> <laughs> well, I find that sort of fascinating um, as someone who grew up in Queens and moved to upstate Manhattan. Um, right. Your trajectory seems like almost like the exact opposite of like Trump, who grew up in Jamaica State, Queens. So kind of down, downward mobility, is that what you're saying? Well, well, like you sort of voluntarily left the place that like Trump always wanted to get to, you know? Well, I think New York is always dominated by kind of hungry outsiders, like the city kids who went to private school like me and take the place for granted, always get kind of pushed, pushed out by the, by people who want it more. I think that's the nature of New York. Mike Bloomberg, Eric Adams, these are like, you know, hungry kids from the burbs or from the outer boroughs who, who really want it and don't take it for granted. Peter Kaplan a former editor who helped convince you or, or helped steer Jonah Peretti in in your direction was also editing about New York, but, but never actually staying in New York. Yeah. Um, but your first venture, I think in, in writing was not at the New York sun where, where some people may remember reading you, but was actually, you were based in, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were based in, in Europe for a little while. Um, yes, with, with the Wall Street Journal, and and I'm bringing that up because I think that type of writing, of being a, a like a foreign correspondent, where you're writing with so much context around the news that you're delivering, I see that kind of through line in the reporting that you're doing today at Semaphore, but also like throughout your career and even like to some degree in the book. And I'm wondering if if you think that is is an accurate read or or is that putting too much on an early experience? Yeah, I was a stringer in Latvia for a couple of years. I don't think, I, I mean, I, I don't want to overstate it, but I do think there was something in the early 2000s where people who were overseas, I mean, just literally understood the value in this very literal sense. If you wanted to read the New York Times, you were reading it on the internet. And maybe you could pick up the International Herald Tribune at a hotel or something. <laughs> but I think a lot of foreign correspondents were among the first American journalists to really sort of get obsessed with the internet. I mean, Miriam Elder, who I worked with the BuzzFeed, was a mm-hmm. Moscow correspondent who kind of like 
created a lot of what was this became this very vibrant Twitter conversation among foreign correspondents. And again, it was in part just of necessity, like you weren't you couldn't really operate under the illusion that you were writing for a print publication and that the your sources, your subjects would read it in print. You were ultimately like your sort of influence, among other things, with the people you were writing about depended a lot on what it looked like on the internet. And, and they were reacting to digital products before anybody else. I definitely really got obsessed with blogs sitting in Riga, Latvia after 9-11 and in Kiev, actually, in particular after 9-11, just hitting refresh on like the fairly scant number of places that were updating the news live in 2001. I mean, you could really, if you were kind of obsessed with the news in 2001, you could have this sense that you had read everything on the whole internet and you were waiting for someone to give you something new, please, which is not exactly the experience of the internet now. No, the, in, in fact, the, the, the internet feels like the exact opposite of that. Like, yeah. like, it, like it's never finished. Um, was that where you were on, on September 11th? Since I was, I was in, um, yeah, I was in Kiev actually. That that's, that's kind of a, an amazing, amazing thing. I was, um, I was on the Upper West Side actually working on a, on a city council campaign and had shaken the hands of this like long shot candidate who was voting at a public school that morning named Mike Bloomberg. I don't know whatever happened to him. Um, Yeah. So, so you have finally written a book, um, traffic. Finally, 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 um, genius rivalry delusion in the billion dollar race to go viral. Um, and it's largely centered around Huffington post and Buzzfeed, which both were based in lower Manhattan. What, why did those two news outlets like sort of start there rather than in Brooklyn or the Bronx or or in the Midwest somewhere? I mean, I, you know, I mean, I guess I do think that the one of the thing that sort of cities and Manhattan gives you is this concentration of people and ideas. Um, and if you were and there was this sort of nascent blogging scene that was really sort of revolved around a couple of bars, among other things, in lower Manhattan. And so when so people who were ambitious and interested in the internet went there because that's where the action was. And there were people who'd been do who'd been playing around on the internet. Um and then and then people, I think there were a couple of the people the subjects of my book were people were Nick, the main subjects, Nick right. Denton, Jonah Peretti. Um, what made them interesting to me to write about, because they weren't the only players or the, were necessarily the, the most successful, but they were people who in that moment in the early 2000s in Lower Manhattan saw that the that this kind of internet media wasn't just kind of an interesting alternative thing, wasn't just a toy, but it was something that could swallow everything else, that it could become the main thing, and that it would sort of embody different distribution and different values than what preceded it. And they had different ideas of what that would be. Nick Denton thought it would sort of be a way to unmask the hypocrisy of the media and society. Jonah Peretti thought it would actually produce a much more positive social, pro-social form of of media, which didn't entirely pan out. Well, well, well to to stick on on Jonah for a minute, you sort of describe him in a way that immediately when I was reading the book made me think that he was actually much more like Donald Trump in a way than than what I had initially recognized. <laughs> the like, way that Jonah Peretti was? Yeah. Like you describe him as like a prankster who's playing on the internet to see what works almost doesn't care about the message that he's doing, not above trolling at all. And that he cares more about getting the attention rather than like the actual thing that he's saying to, to some degree, like, like there, there's an anecdote where he trolls, um, Aston Kutcher 
and he and and I think you write something that like if you were to just read this without any context, you would just think he's he's a madman. Yeah, Jonah was kind of a troll. I mean, I think so. Th- this is again one of these things. I mean, for a lot of the story, in a way, the most interesting part to me of writing about the early two thousands is just you have to get your head back into that moment. Because I think right now, for instance, there's a lot of nostalgia about how great the the old <laughs> three network, three newspaper media was. But actually, then everybody felt like it was wildly disconnected from how we communicated with each other and had totally screwed up the Iraq war. And so like there was a lot of appetite for new stuff. Um, But also there was this idea, there was this sort of subculture, which Jonah Peretti came out of and which was very sort of, I think, intertwined with this new internet, which it's sort of embarrassing to say now, but called culture jamming. There's a magazine called Adbusters and kind of anti-corporate pranksterism was a big subtext of the internet. It was sort of presumptively left-wing. It was sort of anti-capitalist, I would say. Yeah. And it was about kind of mocking and undermining the kind of marketing machine that everyone was living inside. And that was really where a lot of Jonah Peretti's sort of early and BuzzFeed's early DNA came from, really just out of pranks and and seeing how they could spread without without the support of the corporate marketing machine. Right. And kind and, of against it. And in in hindsight, it it looks like something that could actually lead to to something with, with much more serious consequences than than a few laughs and and a few dollars yeah. off a, off a spreadsheet. Yeah. But 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 do you think he he deserved any kind of responsibility for where the internet, where sort of that kind of right wing populism has has sort of fermented and become that that he sort of proves that the internet is a place where this can happen and have traction. Like is he like an an, an unwitting cog in in the machinery that that we now see today? Yeah, oh, for sure. And I think one, you know, one of the sort of most interesting things to me about kind of going back to that moment is, first of all, how like presumptively left wing it was. Like everybody kind of assumed that the internet was where young progressive people hung out. I mean, right. even as late as 2011, Barack Obama visits Facebook, and he doesn't have to say like I'm here because you're Democrats. It's he's obviously there because it's like visiting Madison, Wisconsin. It's like a liberal place um, where young where young progressive right. people are, and. And that was just a bit baked in assumption about the internet for the first, you know, for those first 10 years of internet media. And, you know, if you thought about what was the right wing internet, then it was, a, a, there was a site called Free Republic, which was this kind of like incredibly broken sort of thing occupied that, that seemed to be occupied by older people. Um, the Drudge Report was, it was sort of would feed cable news, but the blogosphere was basically this left wing place with some exceptions. Um, and the liberals talked about the net roots, which were their their kind of right. online grassroots. And, and I think when you look back, you can see that actually the people who would create this right wing infrastructure were there from the start. The guy who founded 4chan worked out of BuzzFeed's right. office, actually. Chris the, Tool. Breitbart, who was a, um, you know, who created a big chunk of the kind of new right wing Internet, uh, was a co-founder of Huffington Post. Um, Gavin McInnes, who co-founded the Proud Boys, also who founded the Proud Boys, co-founded Vice. I mean, there are these very clear, sort of close, close ties between these things because these sort of new metrics about, oh, wow, we can tell what people are really interested in, not what they say they're interested in. And these new mechanisms about, uh, on social media that really amplified conflict were kind of perfect for this new anti-establishment right. I mean, they worked well for progressives and particularly for anti-war progressives who were challenging the establishment in the in Howard Dean and Barack Obama. But they worked even better for the right, where particularly, I would say, like one of the purest expressions was sort of in the early days of Breitbart.com, where they're big. They saw that two categories that would get a lot of traffic were... Um, 
crimes committed by undocumented immigrants and a and a category of content that they tagged black crime. And so just tapped into the darkest things in people that a lot of media and that the Republican Party as a whole had always known was there and flirted with, but also in some ways tried to keep at arm's length. And these new right-wing movements just sort of embraced that energy and, and followed it. And that's and as did Donald Trump. And then they also saw these engagement metrics that the BuzzFeed was very focused on as well, particularly on Facebook in the sort of mid-2010s, where the platform was, you know, it wasn't run by people who actually who had any particular politics. They were, you know, they saw that you were engaged, you know, you were spending 15 minutes a day on Facebook and were trying to get you to spend 16 minutes a day. Right. And the, and they saw that if, if you found, if you commented more on content, you would spend more time on the platform and says, ah, we'll turn the dial up and sh- if, right. a com- if content is getting a lot of comments, we'll show it to everybody. And that produced some totally harmless, delightful stuff like the dress. If you yeah. remember that there was this dress, this uh, picture of a dress that we put that somebody sent to BuzzFeed for us to unravel what color it was. And we posted it and everybody in the world Which, was arguing about whether it was white and gold or blue and black. To this day, I still don't understand the fascination about that. Well, it was just, it was a, here's, here's why it spread. It was in a literal sense, incredibly divisive. Two thirds of people thought it was one color. One third of people thought it was the other color. It was fun to argue about and totally harmless, right? Right. right. To argue about, in fact, like a very fun, harmless moment of global culture. But it was playing on these mechanisms that that really worked best on divisive things people wanted to fight about. And so the other kind of thing that started to spread everywhere on Facebook would be like, I would post a racist meme. You would say, you're a racist. I would then say, no, you're a racist. We'd go on like that for a while. And then the fa- fa- the algorithm or the face this Facebook system would be like, wow, look at all these comments. This is Let's great. do more of it. Let's show this to everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Which is sort of amazing. Like, like having covered, you know, community boards and like incredibly local stuff in, in New York City, uh, some sometimes at, at your behest to go out to um, cover mayoral yeah. forums. Um, like, I would see people express, sometimes with, with reservation and sometimes not, these like dark undercurrents of, of you know, prejudice, racism, classism, uh, nimbyism, but they were doing it with some level of acknowledgement that that there was a risk in what they were doing because they were in person and in public saying it. And the fact that the internet allowed people to sort of do this with less reservation. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, it was, it was one of the many theories of the internet that turned out to be wrong <laughs> was that real identity would make people behave better because I, I, I do think there's this belief that we all sort of share and it seems intuitive that look, if you're under your own name, you're going to behave better. But Facebook actually is a real identity platform. Everybody is under their own name and it did not turn out to make people behave better. So I actually think that's why we think that and why it's wrong is pretty interesting. Yeah. I, don't, I don't really know the answer, but it's it's intuitive that people behave better when they're under their own names or when they're not in person than when they're anonymous. But I think if you look at school board meetings for the last five, few years, I think you can see some pretty... Like, I think a lot of this stuff is is happening in person and under people's names. Yeah. Um, the one thing I, I did not realize was how reliant BuzzFeed was on Facebook as like a traffic vehicle. Um, yeah. How how much of that was, was known to you when you decided to leave Politico and go to BuzzFeed to get this underway? That, that it would be reliant specifically on Facebook and by extension, Mark Zuckerberg's decision-making process about 
what gets seen and what gets showed. Oh, so, I mean, that was the whole idea. Yeah. I mean, I think what, in 2012, the thing that drew me to BuzzFeed was that was that I was already living in a world as a reporter, as I suspect you were, where we were writing blogs, but the thing we were, but we weren't really, and in previous years, we were writing blogs that people were hitting refresh on the blog, and the blog felt like the center of the conversation. And then come 2011, 2010, 2011, it's like, oh, wait, every all those people are on Twitter who used to hit refresh on my blog, and I'm still writing the blog, but what I'm looking for is to write the blog item and have it go viral over on Twitter. And if people talk about it on Twitter, that's how I know if I'm onto something, if I have a scoop, if this political class is talking about it. And so when Jonah approached me in 2011 and said, hey, we want to build this whole media organization around the idea that your normal consumer doesn't go to your website, they go to twitter.com, facebook.com, um, YouTube, Pinterest, stumble upon, if you remember that. Oh, yeah. Um, and these other platforms. Dig. It made to dig, right? It made total intuitive sense to me. It was like, oh, yeah, Reddit. Like, that is how I use the internet, how people I know use the internet. And it would be so liberating not to have to just like write filler stories for the front page of my website and just write for this kind of, at that point, hyper sophisticated, but still kind of sweet and innocent audience on social media right. who just wanted news and wanted to have earnest conversations about what was true and what was false. Yeah. Um, was really great. It was like a ideal and it would be, allowed me to hire great reporters and turn them loose to do really fun work. So I'm, I'm going to use that as a segue to, to give a little backstory between us um, in terms of hiring great reporters. Uh, I met you when you had posted a blog item on the politicker saying you, you wanted an intern to cover the 2005 mayor's race. Um, and I messaged you from my desktop computer at the Queens Tribune saying hire me free labor essentially yeah this um, is this is before it was sort of became obvious that you were supposed to pay interns <laughs> i just remember that because your 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 um your uh, aim handle was ozzy paper uh, all as one lowercase word i i didn't know and then felt embarrassed to ask like where the cutoff was <laughs> between your names yeah no, it's it, it's amazing. How, how I, you... I sat down. I remember sitting down with you at Eisenberg's and thinking, is his name Azip or Ozzy? Anyway. That was great. Uh, fun fact, <laughs> you actually told me to meet you at Mayrose, and I deduced that you actually meant Eisenberg's, and I like, ran over there. Wait, where did I say? Uh, Mayrose, which which was on Broadway across the street from the Observer office. Um, huh. But you had given like the... You oh, the address of um, so, yeah. Jesus. Well, I'm glad we figured it out. I, I vividly remember. I think you were wearing a suit. I I think so. You seemed very nervous. Well, I I was because like again, like my big experience coming out of Queens was like writing for this like weekly publication that the editor sort of wanted to fire me for my level of incompetence and not being able to write. And I, insubordination. There was a level of of insubordination there. One one of the co-publishers or whatever was also secretly managing <laughs> uh, campaigns yes. that the newsroom was, was writing incredible about story and when i tried yeah and when I, when I tried to write about it the editor got incredibly incredibly upset um there was, there was no twitter at that time so there was no way to get this information out other than through those publications but you you took a risk and i and i interned for you and the thing that we did that was sort of fascinating was you would send me out to cover mayoral debates, campaigns, and events. And as the daily reporters were sitting in the in the audience with me, like watching something, people like Glenn Thrush, Maggie Haverman, Frankie Adosian at the uh, at the New York Post, they would um, they would see what I was seeing, and their level 
and and their threshold to get that news of that night into the neck into that morning's paper was literally to call their editor and say he's like stop the presses mm -hmm. and get something going which was an incredibly yeah. high bar and for you and me the bar was much lower and i would literally call you afterwards and you would say like what happened i would babble and we would plot out two or three blog items that night and publish it the morning after which made us look like we were ahead of the curve when we were actually just working a slightly different time shift which later began to like accelerate the news cycle instead of one instead of just publishing news in the morning once a day we were publishing three or four times which helped accelerate things to where we are now which is constant yeah, remember we could we could email. Remember there was a period where the the, the um, blogger software, you could just email the item, and the subject line of the email would become the subject line of the blog item, and then the text of the email would be the blog item. I remember you and I spontaneously grabbing dinner with a source, and you sending out a blog item about like an, an election result from from the from the dining table, of yeah. of, of yeah. where where we were at. But but with that accelerated pace of the news cycle you've you have been one of the people who've later come around and said hey maybe covering politics like a horse race covering it in that way wasn't the best thing and you've have made like a course correction on on that front um and, and a lot of other people have as well i think mark halperin uh has sort of done that politico no, no longer features their bloggers as people sitting on a racetrack yeah covering stuff I'm I'm wondering if the way that BuzzFeed covered some politics and news, if 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 this book also serves as that kind of course correction in any way, that looking back on how people treated trolling, inside jokes that were, you know, shared outside uh, of particular in groups, I'm I'm wondering if, if if in creating a new newsroom at Semaphore, you're rethinking how like the tone of how people are covering news in that way well i think the moment has changed a lot and what people what, what readers want has changed a lot i mean i think you know the moment i was writing about in the beginning was a moment when the you know when, when people were incredibly constrained in what they could read right you could mm. there's a few publications you were sort of they were published you know once a day or less and and then there were, and and the shift to being able to read everything from everywhere and get this diversity of opinions, including really crucially anti-war opinions, was really exhilarating for people. Um, and opinions that weren't from the U.S. too um, felt totally new. And I think, you know, and I think there was this utopian sense of, about that for a little while. That then, you know, what really curdled in the 2010s and and you know, when a lot of these tools, you know, became used for propaganda and misinformation. And, and and I think also just the volume of incoming became overwhelming. And now, and I think what people want now is something really different, which is like, can someone just like short sort through this whole shit show for me? Right. Um, when did you get the idea to to launch Semaphore? When did that first start to, to, to percolate in, in your brain? Uh, you know, just my partner, Justin Smith, and I have been talking about it for years, honestly, since maybe 2017, just about it felt that it felt I mean, part of the original idea was that so much of the so many of the stories we cover, you know, the rise, you know, the rise of the far right, COVID, um, social media are global stories that are often being covered as local or national stories. And you just you really miss huge chunks of the story if you think that 
sort of Donald Trump was this anomalous American phenomenon versus people like him were elected in most democracies around the world at the same time. So like something's happening that isn't totally about the history of the United States, for instance. Um, and, and I think that's, you know, so that was sort of to some degree where it started. And um, yeah, but I've been talking about it. But I think as we, you know, as, as time went on and we sort of thought hard about like, well, what is the problem that consumers have right now we really did focus in on these ideas around kind of transparency and and helping to distill intelligently distill the whole internet for for readers um and 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 you've also created semaform which is having like the news up top the reporter's view and then room to yeah we're trying we're trying to really like take this idea about transparency very and about very literally and to say look you like you're not getting your news from an algorithm you're getting it from a human being it's always been true it's just we're not going to hide it from you we're going to you know tell you what the facts are and tell you what the reporter's point of view is and not not mix those two um uh ag salzberger the the times publisher recently spoke with um david remnick yeah and uh remnick would ask them just why don't you come out and just say that you're a liberal right uh, and, and and he balked and declined to do that um and, and I'm wondering how much tr- transparency you and Justin are going to have about your own politics, your own uh, financial investment in Semaphore and th- things like that. Oh, um, I mean, I think we've been pretty transparent about investment. Like I didn't, Justin, Justin is an investor in Semaphore. I'm a shareholder, but but not one of the sort of cash investors. I, I don't think that, I'm not sure that's that that interesting. Um, and I don't, when I say transparency, I actually don't mean that like I should get up on a stump and like pour out my heart about all my innermost beliefs about everything in the world. I mean, when I write an article, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, when I write an article rather than tweaking the article a million different ways to, um, you know, to, to sort of indicate what I really believe, like I'm going to quote Doug Musio saying this thing, because that really does reflect what I really think, but I'm not allowed to say what I think. So I'm going to put it, I'm going to launder it through the voice of an expert. I think better, particularly if you're a reporter who's covered a beat for a long time and knows a lot, just say what you say, what you're trying to like, you know, I think there's often you read an article and you're like, All right, what is this reporter trying to say? Right. Like, I think I get it, but like, what are they trying to say? And the thing is like good reporters often know more than their sources. Good, you know, a reporter's been on a beat for a decade, knows a lot. And the rule that they should hide their opinion and also in some ways, cheat the reader of their analysis just doesn't make any sense in a moment when people feel very really are hungry for transparency and do connect to individuals more than they connect for to institutions i love the doug muzio quote uh he just retired uh so great great new yorker great great new yorker a generation of reporters are gonna have to find a a new quote machine yeah he always he honestly always in his defense he would actually tell you what he thought not uh Completely. Not what you what not what he thought you wanted to hear. There are others who were. I mean, I literally remember being in the basement of City Hall once and hearing a Daily News reporter say, or in the, I remember, yeah, say, um, a great Daily News reporter who will remain nameless, call a city councilman and say, "Hey, so the mayor said this, and I figure you're going to say this, okay? Okay, click." <laughs> oh, name that reporter, please. No, I think it was uh, some solidarity. Oh, got got you, um, but. Uh, I love the fact that you reported out of uh, the basement of City Hall, Room 9. Sorry, um, Room 4A. Room 4, I never made it up to Room 9, Room 4A. Uh, we, all, we all have our our uh, missed goals. Um, <laughs> but, but you 
you, you covered the 2005 mayor's race, quickly turned into the 2006 race for governor, which featured uh, an attorney general candidate named Andrew Cuomo. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after that, you quickly pivoted to the the 2008 presidential race, which really got underway in 2007. But you were you did all of that while being based in New York, and you've covered uh, national politics, largely being being based in in New York with heavy travel, and now you're leading a international global uh, newsroom while still dipping your toe into New York every now and then. I remember like one of the first pieces you wrote for the Times was about Andrew Cuomo's telegenic press briefings during COVID. And you seem to be using your perch on a, on a national stage to cover, to still cover local stuff. And I'm wondering how, hmm. how, how important is that for you to still weigh in on what the mayor or the governor are doing while also trying to follow what's happening with like Trump and Zuckerberg and things like that? Oh, um, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I'm just obviously very connected to New York politics because I know all the people and, you know, live here and I'm, you know, very interested in it. I don't, I don't think it really, I mean, I do think there's something valuable about, I don't know, staying in tune to local politics because it's just so much realer than national politics. Like the issues that national politics revolves around are often issues that most voters have no contact with. They're sort of purely symbolic issues. Um, I mean, if you think about, you know, particularly right now, like most people in America are not facing, they're not like, what, whatever you think of the substance of the argument over whether trans girls should be able to compete in girls' competitive high school sports, like hasn't been an issue at my kids' high school, haven't, don't really know anyone who it's been an issue, like where it's been a conflict. I'm sure there, you know, there are complicated right. stories out there, but that's like a big symbolic issue that doesn't touch people's lives that directly. And when you cover local politics, almost all of it is like very, very immediate. Like when they change the way school, like high school admissions are allocated, like everyone loses their mind in New York or loves it because it affects their kids immediately. Um, garbage pickup. And I think, and I think there's sort of a, and, and you, and, and member, you know, local politicians who have their problems of all sorts do know what people in their neighborhoods are mad about and what they care about. And there's just this level of connectivity to reality in local politics that I've always loved and and felt was sort of a refreshing contrast to national politics, you know, even though it can be incredibly hacky and corrupt, obviously. I I think hacky and corrupt would be a great name for a local politics site. Um, Is local politics scalable? Um, You know, I think less than it used to be. I mean, I think it used to be that a great, a great national politician was somebody who had just sort of built constituencies up locally you know, bit by bit until they had a national stage, but didn't necessarily need such a national identity. I mean, Chuck Schumer has elements of that where he's really his part of his power is how popular, how strong his base is in New York. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't necessarily stand super clearly for the left versus the right in, um, you know, in national politics, um, in national democratic politics. He'll be happy to hear that. The image he's a legislative leader. He's got to be a big tent figure. Yeah. Um, but you know, but I think but I think the thing that's happened over the last, I don't know, 50 years, this isn't some new trend, is this nationalization of politics, this and kind of mediaization. I mean, I remember going out to Iowa in 2000, in 2008 and then again in 2012. And and by 2012, when you'd ask a voter, like, hey, what do you think about, you know, 
whoever about Rick Santorum, Mm -hmm. they would say, well, you know, what they said on Fox News was this. And you're like, I can see, I don't, I'm not asking you what they said on Fox News. Like I can watch Fox News too. But, but there was a sense at which instead of you'd go out to like the countryside and find that all you were getting was, was national politics fed back to you. Right. A feedback loop. Um, Yeah. Is, is there a way for someone who is entrepreneurial like you, who really cares about journalism, to create a thriving local news outlet? Or or is the method really that you need some kind of billionaire or rich person to sort of be, be the backstop? I do want people to think when people talk about the crisis in journalism, about job losses in journalism. There are, you know, I mean, right now there's really tough stuff happening in digital media, but by far the biggest share of job losses is in local news and local newspapers. And, you know, I think if you think back to how great a business that was in the 20th century, where these businesses, you know, built giant towers next towering over city hall in every city and really, you know, employed hundreds of people and printed money. Cause if you wanted to sell mattresses in Cleveland, you had to go through the plane dealer and they kind of had a monopoly um, on advertising. Like that's really over. And, and, I think we, I have a feeling that there ought to be hundreds of reporters running around New York covering local stuff. Like it feels wrong that there are not. And yet it's very, very hard to see your way to back to a business model that does that. I think, you know, individuals, you and I have done it. My wife, Leanna Zagari, runs Brooklyner, which does it. And, you know, can do really quality work, at, but cannot employ hundreds of people. And there's just, it's very hard to figure out that model. Um. So in in the last uh, two minutes here, um, what advice would you give for a journalist who is starting out now in this in this industry? Should they just email you or hit you up on AIM? Um, oh man, yeah, hit me up on. I was I was like the when the lights went out on AOL Instant Message, I was still there. Um, I mean, I don't know. My advice is to break news. That I think I think people it's called news, you know, the business news, and so you need news. And I think people should sometimes overthink what it takes to cut through. And in fact, as a young journalist, the way that you can get people to pay attention to you is to break news. Any format. Um, do you get news from places like TikTok or are you still going to Twitter? You know, I'm, I'm going to more different places now. I'm, I still use Twitter and, 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 you know, even as it degrades like it. But I look at Reddit a little more than I used to, although it's half switched off right now. Um so certainly look at lots of different websites. I find myself looking at the Drudge Report again, like not just to see what is Drudge thinking, but just to know what is happening in the world, which is the first time in a long time that I've done that. Amazing. Um, okay. And for, for the diehard listeners who made it this far, where is the best place to go in New York for media gossip? Like literal place for either food, drinks, both, but where you could see interesting things or run into interesting people. Um, you know, I think Old Town, and maybe this is just for our generation of kind of Gen X, old millennial types. Um, I feel like Old Town is still where I'm likeliest to run into uh, to someone I know. Amazing. Uh, free advertising for Old Town. Great place. Ben, thank you so much. Um, and looking forward to your next book. Whenever, whenever that comes out. Yes, any minute now. But thanks, Ozzy. Thanks for having me on. F- FAQ. This has been FAQ NYC. We're part of The City, a nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. 
our work is freely available to everyone at thecity.nyc and is supported by listeners and readers like you. Go to thecity.nyc slash give if you'd like to pitch in. We are an affiliate of NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and are a proud member of the Brookhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists. Find it all at popula.com. Our host this episode has been me, Ozzy Pabra, and I'm usually joined by Christina Greer and Harry Siegel, who is also our executive producer. Our engineer for this episode has been the one and only Adam Camara. As ever, thank you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. As Harry would say, be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more.